0: Log Talk Radio Uh-oh, guess what day it is? Julie! Huh? Julie! Huh? Guess what day it is? Guess what day it guess is. is? Guess what day it is?
2: <laughs> Anybody? Anybody?
0: Mike, 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 Mike! Huh? What day is it, Mike? Huh? <laughs> Woo-hoo! Listen, guess what today is? Listen, guess what today is?
2: It's
0: Hump Day! Hump day!
1: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Donaldson Files here on the Bachelor News Radio Network. We have John Tellum who will be joining us from the Center for American Experiment. We're going to be uh, talking inflation. Inflation and more inflation. And I tell you, the reason I brought John on because he wrote a very interesting piece uh, recently. And basically, the way he—it's the title—is "Inflation Destroys the Fifteen-Dollar Minimum Wage and Modern Monetary Theory." And so we're going to talk about, you know, his article. We're going to talk about a lot of different things dealing with inflation. And I thought it was one of those interesting articles because. One of the aspects is modern monetary theory. Uh, The best way I could describe modern monetary theory could be this way. It is what happens when you have public officials and politicians who adapt unicorns and rainbow as opposed to actually sound economic thinking. Uh, In effect, You can print as much money as you want, if I understand the theory correctly, and John is going to explain the theory in full detail. And if I understand correctly, we can print as much money as we want because we're the reserve currency and we can do it and there'll be no inflation, no price to pay, and we can spend trillions of dollars and God knows what. But I'm going to – introduce my guest who's an economist for the Center for American Experiment and uh, and John before I you know uh, get into modern monetary theory why don't you talk very briefly about the Center for American Experiment
3: Right. well thanks for having me on it's, uh, it's always a lot of fun um, the Center for the American Experiment we're a think tank based in Minnesota um, we focus primarily on um, state policy so you know all kinds of things. We've got education policy, fellow energy policy. I do
2: uh,
3: economics with my colleague Martha. Um, but we do kind of—I mean, I, I write something for the website every day. So sometimes I have to go a bit more uh, broadly um, for my subjects, and hence the uh, the MMT fifteen-dollar um, inflation post. Um, but yeah, primarily we fo- we are focused in Minnesota um, on free market, small government, conservative uh, uh, government policy and public policy.
1: All right. Explain modern monetary theory. (laughs) Well, um, I should start (laughs) off by
3: saying that there are are several different types. Um, When I've argued against modern monetary theorists, um, I I often get told, oh, no, that's not real modern modern monetary theory. This is real modern monetary theory. So you argue against that. And then someone else pops up and goes, no, 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 that's not real MMT. This is real MMT. Um, So it gets to be quite difficult. It's a little bit like playing whack-a-mole. You'll get told, oh, you need to listen to L. Randall Ray. You need to listen to Warren Moser instead. Um, And it can get quite tedious and and be a bit of a waste of time. So the the version of modern monetary theory that I tend to focus on um, is is Stephanie Kelton's, um, because she has been a fairly high-profile policy economist. She's worked with Bernie Sanders. um, And her book, The Deficit Myth, which is fairly new, is probably the most high-profile statement of modern monetary theory that there is out there. Um, As for modern monetary theory itself, as Stephanie Kelton puts it out, um, what it says, it starts from from an observation that's absolutely true and completely banal, which is that a monetary sovereign um, uh, does not ever have to go bankrupt. A monetary sovereign is something like the federal government, Uh, that prints the money, issues the currency that it borrows in. So it can't go bankrupt, or it need never go bankrupt, because no matter how much debt it racks up, it could always pay it off just by printing the money to pay it off. And so, and this is, that's really the kind of kernel of modern monetary theory right there. Um, Now, what happens then with modern monetary theory is you kind of leap from that truism, that banal truism, and say, make a huge leap in logic, which is to say, well, this means that deficits don't matter. We don't need to worry about, you know, uh, interest rates and red ink. We can just borrow, borrow, borrow or print, 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 spend, spend, spend. It doesn't matter. Just just go for it. Um, now, of course, anybody else, most people would look at that and think, well, if you just print money like mad and increase the money supply relative to the supply of goods and services, you're just going to get inflation. So really all monetary theory boils down to is you don't need to worry about turning into Greece because you can turn yourself into Zimbabwe instead. Um, if I had to sum it up, that's how I would do it.
1: Okay, so basically, I mean, you know, I tell you what, your explanation in a way reminds me of the old argument, well, the problem with socialism is never has never been tried. And every socialist will give you a reason or a, quote unquote different version, but we pretty much understand what it is, and we know it fails and I look at this theory and I don't I' trying to I mean I know there's you know, an attempt to obfuscate the basic principle behind it, but you know, uh, it's still basically based on the premise we can print as much money. I mean, I know that uh, Shelton Kelton, because you quote her, saying, well, there are no finance. just because there are no financial constraints on the federal debt budget doesn't mean there are no real limits for what a government can and should do, which I think right off the bat is rather confusing. Uh, every economist has their own internal regulated by the availability of real product research, the state, the technology, the quantity, and the quality of its lands, and – in fact, is a uh, exotic, I think she's trying to have it both yeah. ways in the sense that uh, in sense but here's the bottom line. She's basically saying at this point we're nowhere near where those roadblocks are gonna occur. We can spend an extra four three point five trillion dollars and print enough yes. money to cover it because there's no price to be paid in the near future. Is that to me is how I interpret what she's telling me. Is that your interpretation?
3: That, that's very true. Um, essentially, so the, the passage that I quote there, I think, is very important. Firstly, because it, may, it makes it clear that modern monetary theory is absolutely nothing new. Um, if you tell any if – you, if you pull the Keynesian and a monetarist, you know, a Milton Friedman monetarist out of a crowd and said to them, if you increase the money supply when there's an awful lot of unemployment, what's going to happen? They will tell you that employment will expand. That's standard stuff. Um, And, you know, they will tell you that when there isn't a lot of unemployment around, um, if you massively expand the money supply, then you will get inflation. It all depends on how much excess capacity there is, you know, in terms of idle plans, unemployed workers, et cetera. And modern monetary theorists always seem to assume that we're well away from the productive front capacity, that, we're, that the economy is functioning well below its capacity. And so that you can just print, 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 spend, 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 and it's all cool. But the thing is, the fact that, we've now, that we're facing the inflation that we're facing tells me that actually we're running right up against the current productive capacity of the economy as it stands. Now, there's several reasons for why that's constrained at the moment, but the fact remains, that we are, at the moment, uh, the fact that we're we're seeing inflation, consumer price inflation, uh, you know, very elevated levels, shows me that we are much, much closer to the productive capacity of the economy uh, than modern monetary theorists would like to think. Really, all modern monetary theory is, um, is, uh, is kind of rebadged uh, new Keynesianism or monetarism uh, with a massive amount of hype behind it.
1: Okay. All right, so basically, I mean, you know, I, again, this is to me an interesting aspect because their real argument is, you know, we're nowhere near this point. I mean, that's how I interpret her. So what's an extra $3.5 trillion? But the real world is demonstrating uh, with the, hot, you know, the increase in inflation that something is happening and it's not necessarily good. Because, you know, uh, and I want to kind of – I'm going to have you kind of follow the because, you know, I, I had a conversation with my financial planner who works for Merrill Lynch, and we got we, – we talk about this once a month, and she's making the point to me, well, you know, many of my people, researchers are telling us this is transitory. But like, as I said this morning, I said define transitory. <laughs> so, so far we've had four or five months of 5% plus inflation. And every time you listen to Powell, the Federal Reserve, or even Janet Yellen, I mean, they're saying, well, uh, we're going to be in a transitory stage for months, if not a year out. That doesn't sound transitory to me. And I'll have you uh, you know, comment on that when we get back. Uh, this is Tom Donaldson, Donaldson Files, on the Bachelor News Radio Network here in
0: Every day I wake up at 5 a.m. to give dad his medicine. Every day I wake up at 5 a.m. to give dad his medicine. At 6 a.m. I make his breakfast. Every day I wake up at 5 a.m. to give dad his medicine. At 6 a.m. I make his breakfast. At 7 a.m. I shower. Every day, I wake up at 5 a.m. to give Dad his medicine. At 6 a.m., I make his breakfast. At 7 a.m., I shower. I start laundry at 8. At 10, we go for a walk. Every day, I wake up at 5 a.m. For those dealing with the daily struggles of caring for a loved one, we hear you. That's why AARP created a community with experts and other caregivers for advice, tips, and support. Together, let's help each other better care for ourselves and the ones we love visit aarp.org slash caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council.
2: Napa know-how. Napa guy knows not to judge a man by his car's multicolored paint job or absence of modern gadgetry. Who cares if it's technically old enough to vote and the windows are powered by the strength of your left arm? Your monthly payment is zero, and it'll stay that way. Because with over 500,000 parts and a little Napa know-how, you can keep anything on the road. She may not be pretty, but she's all yours. That's Napa Know How. Napa
1: Know How. This is Tom Donald, the Donaldson of Files Piles here on the Bachelor News Radio Network. And don't forget you can listen to this show every day uh, at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Central Time, or 11 a.m. Eastern Time. And... 10 a.m. Central Time here on the bachelornews.airtime.pro. Bachelornews.airtime.pro. we pro, bachelor pro. also on streamyard.com, iTunes, Spotify, and tune in. This is Tom Donaldson. Welcome back to the Donaldson Files. Okay. John, define transitory. When somebody says to you, transitory inflation, how do you... Interpret that statement
3: well it's a very difficult one um, i I mean jerome
1: uh,
3: j Powell the uh, the chairman of the Fed just came out the other day he's be, he'd been saying before this is just temporary just temporary now he says it's going to be temporary for longer than we expect um, so at some point you have to think, well you know i I, I don't know what his definition of temporary is um, i the way I might think about it is if you take a whole bunch of money print it up and then dump it into an economy and then prices will rise but at some point they will stop rising so if you think of a, of a straight line you know going along at the price level and there'll be a one-time kind of jump and then it goes back to being flat again just at a higher level um, and that may be transitory okay and um, that's david hume's old thought experiment um, it's M- milton friedman's helicopter money uh, thought experiment Um, But, uh, I mean, there's a couple of things to note about that Firstly, if that dump of money is not a one-off But is ongoing Then you will not find, you know There's just this one-off jump up to a higher level And then it stops at the same rate, at the higher level What you will find is a consistently accelerating rate Um, So that's the first problem That's when inflation really starts to get baked in Which is what we saw in the 60s and into the 70s the second thing about this as well, though, is that um, there's what's called Cantillon effect after the economist Richard Cantillon from the 18th century. And when you dump money into an economy, we tend, we tend to think of just like dumping water into a swimming pool, for example. But that's not how it works. When you pump money into an economy, it goes to some people first. So the first people to get the money, they get this new purchasing power. Um, while the price level is, is what it was. So they actually do have uh, an increase in their ability to buy things. Um, now, they spend that, and it goes to the next group of people, and they buy stuff. And eventually, as it ripples out, the price level gets bid up. But eventually, the money reaches the last group of people who get the new money, the, the nominal money. Um, but they're facing a much higher price level, so they're no better off. And if you look at what's happened, um, over the last few months in the American economy, we're now seeing $15 an hour as an industry norm. This was the union's big uh, you know, revolutionary request a year or so ago. $15 an hour wage is now the industry norm or the economic norm, um, and yet it buys you less than it used to. $15 an hour isn't what it was. Um, so there's also this confusion between uh, the distributional effects and the real and the nominal effects.
1: All right, so that's a yeah, good point. I mean, that's an interesting point because I, you know, that was the one thing I was intrigued with how you started because I know here I live in Iowa. And you know, and maybe and you're seeing twelve, thirteen dollars you know, I don't know what they actually end up paying, but you know, what's being advertised is twelve thirteen, sometimes fourteen dollars an hour. Uh, for jobs let's say a year, you know, two years ago, you're getting paid ten dollars an hour. And and so, and part of that is the shortage of workers. Now, let me ask you a question: What is the cause, in your estimation, of this logjam of workers? You know, why are we having the shortage of workers? Why are we haven't seem to be, you know, a supply problem where, you know, where, you know I mean, literally, I will give an example. You know, you know, I have a laser printer, I can tell you, literally, I have a hard time finding ink for this product. You can walk well, in and maybe one, maybe maybe two. I literally had to order it out to find you know, to get it. Yeah. And so what's the exp in your mind, what's are some of the explanation for, you know, the lack of workers being employed where you're basically pay you're basically paying people these big you know, these wage increases because you can't find the workers. And we keep hearing about log jams in the supply, uh, you know, getting things to the market. Yeah.
3: Well, it turns out that, you know, you can stamp on an economy and flatten it for a year. And it doesn't just, you know, start like a race car on the first turn of the key. So we've got all these uh, problems. I mean, look at lumber. That was a good example, I think. Because these supply uh, issues, these shortages of things, they go beyond the labor market. Uh, and They go into fuel, uh, and they go into lumber. So, and I think lumber is a good example because what you see with lumber, if you remember a few months ago, there was this huge surge in lumber prices.
2: Now, what yeah. has happened
3: is lumber mills were all shut down during the pandemic. Um, so, so the supply slumped, you know, the supply of lumber just crashed. But nobody was buying it, so it didn't really matter. But then as the economy started to open up again,
0: um, and people
3: started to demand lumber, um, it, took, it took time for the supply to get back and to, to come up to stream. So in the meantime, you had this short-term surge. Now, lumber prices are now way down from their peaks because lumber supply is, is, is fairly well back up. If you look at things like uh, fuel, for example, um, that's not gone away. Uh, you know, the fuel price crashed. Um, and then uh, it's gone back up, and it's still 2.99 up in the Twin Cities at the moment. Um, <clears throat> but uh, that's not going down particularly quickly, if at all. And that's because supply is just not expanding. Um, so why is the the, the the fuel industry behaving differently to the lumber industry? Well, in part that's because of the Biden administration, because it's it's doing all these various things um, which are constraining the expansion of the of energy supply. Um, Their big idea seems to be that we can buy it from OPEC or we can beg from the Russians and, you know, hopefully they'll give us some fuel. Well, in actual fact, we've got an awful lot of fuel resources ourselves that we could tap, um, but that's, that's politically off limits. Uh, apparently, we have to, you know, hand our, our vitals to, the, to, to foreigners to, to keep our energy needs going. Um, the labor market is another thing. Uh, obviously, people crashed out of the labor market when the, the economy was shut down. Um, but in Minnesota, for example, when you look at the federal enhancements to unemployment insurance of $300 a week, if you then add that to what the average worker gets on unemployment in Minnesota and divide it by, you know, 40 to get your kind of average hourly, uh, hourly wage over a week, you're looking at $26 an hour that you can earn on unemployment. Now, of course, if people can earn $26 an hour on unemployment, they're going to do that rather than take a $15 an hour job working. So that's part of the labour shortage. That's not all of it. Obviously, there's other factors at play. Um, Childcare is an issue, um, a shortage of childcare. And the way that schools are carrying on, are schools going to be back? Are they not going to be back? Is it distance learning? Is it something else? That has an impact. Um, But it's also the case that if you look at uh, the the, the unemployment rates of uh, households with children and without children, you don't see a huge difference. So that's not really the big factor that people say it is. Um, There's also some people just still scared of catching COVID, you know, um, that's some factor. But, you know, it's kind of a mixture of all these things. The the short story is that if you stamp on an economy, and you know, grind your boot into it for a year to fight a a, a pandemic, it doesn't start that quickly. Um, And it certainly doesn't start that quickly uh, if the the administration is doing everything it can, uh, as it is in the fuel industry, to stop supply expanding.
1: All right. Okay, so basically, now let me tie this into inflation in this way, and explain. You know, if I'm explain why I'm on the right because here's what I'm hearing, it, you know, essentially from you is number one, you have government interventionist policies involved, uh, you know, that we're seeing on a micro level, the federal level, and, and certainly we spent a full year and a half on many state levels where literally the government was shutting things down or certainly interfering with the productivity of it of individuals and companies within their spheres and certainly you've seen this in the federal government a good example would be oil and and, and i want to get, uh, get into your formula here uh because you're talking about this basically monetary it's money the you know, production of money the velocity of money namely how quickly it goes through
2: uh, yeah.
1: Uh, price level multiplied by the output in other words if you're printing a ton of money it's spinning fast out of control but on the productivity side you're not producing anything or you're reducing the production example oil fuel industry where you're literally hamstringing local production and keeping it from being produced you end up with less of it you end up with inflation uh, yeah is that a, is that a good example
3: i think that, that's, a, that's a good summary I, in, in very crude terms you can think of uh the price level as the amount of money divided by the amount of stuff um you know so if you if you massively increase the amount of money um relative to the amount of stuff then that will go up you know prices will go up uh the price of each unit of stuff will increase um but if you, if you increase the amount of stuff by the same amount, everything stays the same, it's just a nominal change, not a real change. Um, but what's happening at the moment is we've massively expanded the, the amount of money. So if you think of that MVPY equation, we've massively expanded uh, the M part of that. Um, but at the same time, we're holding down the Y part of it. Uh, you know, V is kind of constant. Um, so what you're seeing is a rise in prices. That's going to happen. Um, the problems that the economy faces right now are not demand-side problems. The problems the economy faces are not problems of a shortage of purchasing power. The problems the economy faces are a shortage of stuff, a shortage of goods and services, a shortage of things for that money to be spent on, which is why the things that there are, get, the price gets bid up. So this is a supply-side problem. It's not a demand-side problem. And that's why the administration's current policies are so dangerous, because every, everything they see they diagnose as a demand problem that needs to be solved by more spending. when that's completely the wrong uh, option. And that's what uh, actually would exacerbate this. And if you talk about transitory inflation, if you keep dumping more money in uh, to a supply uh, constrained economy um, to try and boost demand, then you will see inflation that's a lot more than transitory.
1: Hold on, to that's Tom Johnson, Johnson Piles with John Pelham here from the Center of American Experiment here at the Bastard News Radio Network.
4: A boy born in Joplin, Missouri was fascinated by anything with wheels and a motor. The odds of him going on to fascinate millions with his talent? One in 260,000. The odds of this born racer having 157 career top 10 finishes in NASCAR? One. In in 125 billion. But every driver seeks the pinnacle of their achievements. The odds of him winning both the Daytona 500 and the Brickyard 400 in the same year? 1 in 195 million. The odds of a child being diagnosed with autism? 1 in 88. I'm NASCAR driver Jamie McMurray, and my niece has autism. Learn more at AutismSpeaks.org slash signs. Early diagnosis can make a lifetime of difference. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. And
1: don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, back to Donaldson Piles here on the Bachelor News Radio in Leopard. Don't forget, tonight it's Education Night. We're going to be talking with a school, a chairman of a school board in Northern Virginia and a professor from the George Mason on education. So join us tonight. It should be kind of fun. On the Resistance Hour, we're Dr. Larry and Tom. And for those who may not know the Resistance Hour Dr. Larry and Tom, well, we take a look at politics from a conservative perspective in the post-Trump era. Listen to us every Wednesday, 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Block Talk Radio. And you can listen to our podcast every day on pro. All right. We're back to our discussion of inflation. Okay. Let me – okay, you make a very good point. Uh, you know What we're seeing is demand, 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 but we're not looking at the supply side of the equation, in other words, the production of goods and services. Yeah. Uh Now, because to me, monetary is about – it's a monetary phenomenon. It's not – it's what the – it's the printing of money. So how does – again, we've talked to a lot of people, and I've told a lot of people as as chairman of America's PAC, our political organization, and we get a lot of people say, you know what, spending is bad, and it does lead to inflation. So the question I'm going to ask you is, Does it lead to inflation, or is it action that the Federal Reserve will do in response to the government spending money?
3: Well, the question of whether government spending is inflationary depends entirely, really, I think, on uh, how it's financed. Uh, If the government taxes uh, to spend, it takes money out of your pocket, spends it out, and it circulates back around – um, but there's no need, you know, the, the, the amount of money hasn't gone up, so it's still the same amount of money chasing the same amount of goods and services. Um, if it borrows the money from you, um, it's kind of a similar thing, you know, it takes money out of your pocket, spends it, and it circulates around, um, so there's no need for that to be inflationary. Um, if, on the other hand, it takes this money and prints it, or, or it prints the money and spends it, then it's adding new money. So remember, you know, it's the quantity of money divided by the quantity of stuff. And so you're adding to the top uh, half of that uh, division. Um, and so uh, that's where uh, government spending can become inflationary is when it's, um, when it, when it's uh, financed by money printing. Now, there's actually all kinds of rules and laws that make that most central banks are actually forbidden from just printing money to spend. Um, but one of the ways that they can get around that and um, this is what uh, quantitative easing did a lot of, is central banks can uh, buy government debt. Uh, they can't buy it directly from the government. That's that's financing. But what they can do is buy it from secondary buyers. So the government sells a treasury bill to you, and you can then sell it back to the Federal Reserve. And so it just introduces a middleman. So it's kind of this trade, you know. Um, so that's one way they can get around this, actually. Um, and so, you know, the thing to look out for um, is, you know, if, if you want to see what's happening with inflation, is to look at, you know, things like M two, M three. These uh, these aggregates are still published uh, by the you know, various Federal Reserve banks, uh, and you do see uh, you know, the Fred data by the Federal Reserve Bank of uh, St. Louis or Richmond. It's one of the two, uh, but that produce that's very easy to look at. You can go and look at it, and you do see that M two, M three which are both measures of the money supply are both spiked very, very sharply in recent times uh, in recent months. Um, and so, you know, that tells you that there's a lot more money circulating. Um, certainly it's increased a lot more than the amount of stuff that's circulating. Um, and so you have to ask yourself, where's that money gone? Well, it's gone into, you know, the demand side of the economy.
1: Okay, so basically the explanation would be, if the federal reserve says okay we're going to print more money to finance this deficit uh you're going to end up with inflation yeah and would you now, are you seeing that now with the federal reserve you mentioned you know the money you know, the m2 the m3s are going up or spike. Uh, is that what you fear that they're doing
3: uh yeah because um, if you look at these monetary aggregates, I mean, the Federal Reserve, you know, are the only people that can create base money, narrow money, high-powered money, and all the rest of it. Um, nobody else can do that. Um, banks themselves can create uh, broad money, um, you know, so that, and, and kind of credit money. Um, but that's all kind of pyramided out from what the Federal Reserve creates. So really what the Federal Reserve is doing is kind of imagine an upside-down pyramid of expanding the, the base of that. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's absolutely what's happening. I think you're seeing some of that. Um, the Federal Reserve is is working very hard um, to support uh, government policy. And one of the issues that you have, actually, this goes back to kind of monetary policy decades ago. Um, for a long time, in the 50s and into the 60s, Federal Reserve monetary policy um, wasn't about targeting interest rates uh, or you know it wasn't about targeting the money supply growth it was about targeting uh the government borrowing rate it was about keeping the government borrowing rate low um and obviously if you print lots of money and people think oh no they're not going to pay they won't lend to you and your interest rates go up but of course if you're a monetary sovereign you don't have that issue so you can there is actually this you know privilege that you have as the issue of that kind of currency and i wonder if we're not kind of going back to that as a policy as the federal government starts to run such eye watering deficits year upon year upon year, there's going to be an awful lot of pressure on the Federal Reserve uh to print a lot of money to try and keep those uh those interest rates down.
1: Okay, so I, okay, so here okay, here I guess the yeah, this yeah. You know, now the question I'm gonna throw back to you is let me, let me kind of throw back this one because you make an interesting point, and this is a point that I, you know, I've made in a past book, and I'm making it in an upcoming book, is when you look at the political left today, nowhere – it used to be even Democrats would say, well, we've got to get the economy going. We've got to get it growing. We've got to expand the pie. We're not hearing that kind of language anymore from the political left. They're not saying let's expand the pie. They're just saying the pie's there. We just need to make it more equitable. We're not talking about production, per se, as much as it's almost as if this is a zero-sum game and the pie's not going to get bigger. Under those circumstances, I can't see how anything but inflation is not going to happen. When you've already decided the pie's not going to grow, you're not going to be productive. You're just worried about... Uh, splitting the existing Pie if That's my view you know, What's your view on the, uh, on that On what you're seeing well, from I think the, say... an... Go ahead
3: I think it's absolutely right what you say That on, on the political left There's almost no thought um, About where wealth comes from About where it has come from About where it's going to come from uh, There's this absolute Obsession with you know we've got this Wealth that's divided it up And, uh, I mean, to some extent, John Stuart Mill, who was the philosopher and economist of the 19th century, he's responsible for some of this um, because he wrote in his Principles of Political Economy that um, generating wealth was not the same as dividing it. So, you know, the economy or the people in a country would generate wealth, and then the government could come in and divide it all up, and they were two separate things. What he didn't understand, and what subsequent people have failed to understand, is that the generation and the distribution of wealth – are not separate things that happen at different times. They are aspects of the same thing happening contemporaneously. So wealth is distributed as it's generated and it's distributed by its generation. Um, and there's no, you know, like I say, and you're quite right, there's no conception on the left that any of this is the case. Um, and there's no conception that um, you can, if you change the, the distribution of wealth or try to change it massively, um, then you will change the amount of wealth uh, fairly substantially. And if you look back, actually, you know, over economic history, you do see that where there are attempts uh, you know, to massively uh, curtail uh, you know, these economic di- uh, differences, you end up with an awful lot less for everybody, um, apart from some privileged political class like you had in the Soviet Union. Um, so it's, it's bad news. It's very bad news.
1: Well, yeah, here's yeah because I'm you know, like I say, I look at the game plan that they're saying It's okay. We're going to tax the productive side of the equation, but there's not enough rich people to tax, so eventually that drifts down to the poor, to the middle class. Uh, you're going to increase capital gains. You're going to increase corporate tax rates, and we're now back to you know being instead of. You know, moving within the range of every other nation, we're going to go back to being near the top in all of these categories. And I guess my question—I've always thought of, you know, I, a bit. I don't know if you ever sat back and asked any of these—you know—in Minnesota, these uh, individuals to say, "Where are you? Where's the? Who creates the wealth to begin with? Do they? Do they even have a firm understanding who creates the wealth?"
3: So uh, I don't think they do the, the, yeah. the idea isn't it's the, it's the old Marxist year That all wealth is, is generated by labor uh, And that, uh, you know If if, if, you're a, if you're a laborer All the wealth should come to you And the capital is just some kind of leech Living off your surplus value. Um, now that's not true um, You can take a whole bunch of laborers And send them into a field And tell them to dig, sho- uh, dig ditches they're not going to dig many ditches if a capitalist comes along and gives them all a shovel. Well, then they will, you know. And so the the amount by which they are more productive, um, that will be split somehow, depending on various uh, particular economic circumstances, between labour and the capitalist. Um, the idea that all wealth is generated by labour is just not true. Um, and I think if you look back over economic history, the the labour intensive uh, spell of man's existence, which is most of it, um, up to about 1750 or so, uh, where most wealth was generated by labour and hard work and sweat and toil and all the rest of it. That. Uh, that was a period of when living standards are very very low, and it was only when uh, you know people started to accumulate capital and have ideas of where to allocate that capital, um, you know, capitalists really backed by capital. Um, that all that humanity got better, that everybody got better, um, and that's just not thought of at all these days,
1: on the left. All right? Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. Because to me, the, the crucial issue is that uh, I mean, uh, you know, again, it goes back to what you said earlier. It's about the demand side, okay? And I, I kind of remind in such a way. Uh, go back to 2012. It was you didn't build this mantra. Yeah, you know it's like, yeah, you know, like the government builds the roads, they make the schools, they do this, they do that, and I thought to myself, well, it's like the chicken and the egg. You know, where does the government get the resources to do that? And the answer is, they tax the productive side of the equation, which is the people who are you know actually producing the goods and services. In other words, somebody has to create the wealth, but you can tax it so you can build it. Uh, and, and I, and that to me was a sea change. When I heard that mantra being used, to me I looked at that as a sea change where you literally had a political party saying wealth is not going to be created by the private sector. It's a public sector origin in which the private sector plays a role that the government assigns it to. And we're going to take a quick break and follow up on that. This is Tom Donaldson here on the Donaldson Files on the Bachelor News Radio network.
5: You might know me, I'm 50 Cent. You may follow my tweets, my Facebook friends. Odds are a few in six degrees separate us. We're that close. What's crazy is one in six don't know where their next meal is coming from. These are your coworkers, your neighbors, your friends. Hunger is too close for us to ignore. So visit feedinamerica.org slash hunger and find your local food bank to see how you can make a difference. From one close friend to another, let's do this. I'm 50 Cent and together
0: we are feeding America. A message from Feeding America and the Ad Council.
4: I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots.
0: I'm not time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. Them. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids
2: are too old the for flu. media is exaggerating. I can fight
0: it naturally.
2: No matter how
0: you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at blue.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services.
1: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, back to the Donaldson Files here on the Bachelor News Radio Network. And don't forget, follow on every Tuesday following our show on this network is You and the Law, featuring Chief Keith Humphrey and Chief Virgil Green, the show that has honest conversation about law enforcement and the relationship within the black and brown community. And also, uh, the Resistance Hour. With Dr. Larry and Tom We'll follow this show we got a great show coming up Dealing with education And that should be very interesting Because one of the guests Is a chairman of a Prince William school district And I'll be fascinated to listen To his comments That he you know, that One of the gubernatorial candidates uh, Said last night in the debate Namely Parents should not tell Educators what to do (laughs) they have no say in that so it's going to be fascinating to see what his thoughts are uh so this is so we're going to have a great discussion on that later on following this show all right let me i'm going to throw this out to you uh okay the point i was making before we got the break is that it's almost the ideology is the government creates the wealth and what role the, the private sector has is to follow through on the game plan that the government assigns to it. Uh, you want to be in the auto industry? We want uh, electric cars. We want you to produce a ton of electric cars. Uh, if you want uh, energy, we want you to produce windmills, uh, solar panels, uh, whatever, you know, whatever. Uh, you, you get The message to me is the private sector is allowed to exist through – on the ideals of what the government wants it to produce. And I think of, you know, Adolf Hitler basically saying to the German manufacturers, Hey, build me a people's car. And while you're at it, add in a few extra tanks. And you can make a ton of money. And certainly this was the Chinese strategy until the recent, uh, I would say the recent crackdown on billionaires, uh, it was the same thing, you know, long as, you know, we'll let you make as much money as you want, provided it serves the state. And that's what I'm hearing from the modern-day Democratic Party. I don't know. I hate to use the word fascism, but what else does it sound like? Or am I overdoing it, uh, John?
3: No, I, I think you can call it corporatism, certainly, uh, which was – Uh, The economic uh, facets of Italian fascism, certainly, and fascism was was a different thing in every fascist country, really. Um, But, you know, this idea that, you know, you didn't build that, that we only got rich because of the state, it's just not true. If you look at the countries that first became rich or started to become rich first, you know, Britain and the Netherlands, I suppose it was, uh, in the 18th century. Britain didn't have an industrial revolution because it had a bigger government than everybody else. We didn't have a bigger government than, uh, than the Romanov dynasty. We didn't have a bigger government than the Bourbon monarchy or the Hohenzollern monarchy. Uh, in actual fact, we had a government that was substantially more constrained uh, than any of those, and the Dutch did too. Uh, and you know, So actually, the causation runs the other way, I think. The correlation certainly runs the other way, that you started to see economic growth and economic development that led to where we are now. Um, in countries where the government wasn't just parading around trying to do whatever it wanted to do the whole time. Um, I do think that you do see this really awful view. um, This is another separate point um, that is more and more popular out on the left and in the Democratic Party, that we really all just exist to to produce money for the government. You know, so this constant, you know, fretting about tax evasion and tax avoidance. I mean, tax evasion is illegal, fine. You know, but when people say, oh, we're losing all this money to tax avoidance, it's not your money. You know, you're not losing anything. It's not your money. Um, If people are doing perfectly legal things to keep more of the money that they have earned, then what's wrong with that? You know, it's not, I mean, the government exists to serve us, not the other way around. And this constant, I mean, the Biden administration is now bringing in this uh, uh, proposed rule that they're going to track everybody's, financial transfers over $600 or something like that. Again, it's all part of this idea that we all belong to the government and that we're all just really kind of work around to produce uh, surplus value for the government to, to take and to spend how it wishes, uh, which is completely the reverse of what the relationship should be and certainly what the relationship wants to be in a, in a, a, a republic like the United States. All right. What? Okay,
1: Paul well, let me now, I'm going to have you summarize it. Then I'm going to move uh, a little bit uh, different here. But if somebody said to you, or as an economist, says, okay, why is inflation bad? Uh, what's the impact of inflation on the average person? Your answer would be?
3: Well, there's a couple of things. Um, so firstly, what it does is uh, it, if, if the richer you are, the better you can protect yourself against inflation Um, because you get money that, you know, cash that's kind of losing its value, and you can stick it in all kinds of investment things and get yourself a return that protects you against it. Um, The lower down the income scale you get, that becomes less possible. Um, To some extent, you could call cash um, the assets of the assetless. Um, You know, most people, I mean, if you look at uh, people at the bottom of the income scale, um, their their wealth holdings are mostly cash holdings. That's not the case for, you know, Rockefeller or Jeff Bezos or somebody, where it's equities and things like that, you know, bonds or something. Um, so to the extent that um, inflation erodes the value of cash, it's eroding the wealth holdings disproportionately um, of the less well-off. Um, in actual fact, Britain, um, the Bank of England did a study some years ago now that found that quantitative easing made, the richest 10% of Britons were better off, but the poorest 10% of Britons worse off because it inflated the asset, the value of assets held by the richest Britons um, and reduced the value of assets or cash um, held by the, uh, the poorest. So it's socially, uh, you know, iniquitous, I would say. That's one, that's one problem. But a second problem with inflation is if everyone knows what the inflation rate is going to be predicted year, year after year, then you index for it, and kind of really it's not a problem. The problem with inflation comes when it's uh, unpredictable. Um, and so what the issue that you have there is if everyone knows what the inflation rate is going to be, even if it's high and you can index for it, then in real terms, nobody's any better or worse off. Um, but then you know, if the government's going to try and you know, get your resources by inflating the currency, it needs to up the rate but then everybody resets to the higher rates. So and they need to up the rate again. Everyone resets to the higher rate. Milton Friedman talked about this more than 50 years ago. Um, and eventually, the only way that this can be done is by ever increasing rates of inflation. Um, and so that becomes a problem. And it becomes less predictable. And the less, uh, the, the, the less predictable inflation is, uh, the less likely people are to invest. Um, and take uh, investment risks that pay off over time. So um, you have all the problems that you saw in the 1970s where investment uh, kind of ground, useful, productive investment kind of ground to a halt. And instead, people uh, started to spend an awful lot of their time um, trying to find ways to protect themselves from inflation.
1: Okay, yeah. So basically, you know, in effect, this is an interesting point you just made. I want you to, you know, cause I want to follow up on that and have you repeat it. The biggest victims of inflation are not necessarily people at the top. It's people in the middle and people at the end, at the lower end, that suffers the worst from inflation. So I kind of repeat that point that you just made very, because I want people to understand that inflation is not, you know, has a negative impact, not just in society, but those who you want to move up the economic ladder. They're the ones who get hurt the worst. Yeah. yeah. The way I would explain it is:
3: imagine stopping in the street two people. One belongs, or one is in the top ten percent of uh, of people by wealth in America. The others in the bottom ten percent. If you said to the guy in the top ten percent, uh, "What are your wealth holdings? What 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 are they composed of?" It would be things like equities, it would be things like property, it would be things like bonds. Um, only a very small percentage of it um, would be cash, you know, notes or whatever, um, or, you know, cash or deposit at the bank. So, you know, so, so the, the wealth holdings of the richest guy is a much smaller percentage of cash than of other things. If you now look at the guy who's in the bottom 10% and say what makes up your wealth holdings, maybe he doesn't own a house. Um, probably doesn't own a lot of equities Probably doesn't own bonds uh, May not have a 401k, something like that um, it, So his his wealth His assets It's probably the cash that he gets From whatever job he's got um, And so it cash is the assets Of the assetless, like I say um, Which is why uh, anything that Kind of erodes its value um, Disproportionately hurts uh, The people who are worse off um, And like I say, if you think of the two people stopped in the street that's probably the clearest way I could explain it, yeah.
1: All right. Now, let me – okay, I'm going to kind of change a little bit here because in 1971 uh, – you see this on Twitter. You see this going on a lot of conversation. Next thing going off – I won't say the gold standard because we really didn't have a gold standard per se. We had a, a dollar backed by gold. Uh, but certainly, it basically – whatever – gold, whatever relationship that currencies may have had to gold pretty much disappeared. Uh, maybe the first question I'll ask you, if you, you know, could you explain the Bretton wood agreement that pretty much went from World War II to 1971?
3: Yeah, the Bretton woods agreement, um, what it was was an attempt to uh, fix exchange rates between currencies. Uh, During the 1930s, there had been what were called beggar-thy-neighbor devaluations, uh, where countries were constantly trying to devalue their currencies to gain market share against other countries. Um, And this had had been perceived, not unreasonably, to be um, a major cause of economic dislocation in the decade. Um, So after World War II, or towards the end of World War II, Bretton Woods' conference of 1944, one of the ideas was that there needed to be a fixed exchange rate, uh, exchange rate regime uh, amongst the major countries and the major currencies. Now, what Bretton Woods did is instead of tying every country's currency to gold at a fixed value, which is what the old gold standard had been, the Bretton Woods Agreement tied every country's currency to the dollar at a fixed value, and the dollar was then convertible into gold um, at a fixed rate but only in large amounts. So it wasn't like you could walk into the bank with a dollar bill or a $20 bill and get some gold, which is what had been the case under the old gold standard. Um, the Bretton Woods Agreement basically said that only large transactions could uh, that, that could be done for. Um, so that's essentially how okay, it worked. Um, you know, yeah. Okay,
1: well, let me ask you a question. What's the impact? What was the impact of that decision? Yeah. Uh, so, well, if you
3: we look at the it. It. if you look at the golden age of economic growth that people talk about after the after the World War Two, it didn't come to an end with uh, um, yeah, Thatcher or Reagan or or somebody like that. Um, it came to an end earlier, and in fact, I think it's an interesting point when you look at all these various uh, apparently negative economic. Um, Outcomes like the rise in income inequality The rise in wealth inequality uh, The apparent uh, Decoupling of uh, wage Growth with productivity growth They all go back to about 1971 1973 Um, They go back a lot earlier than the Reagan-Thatcher revolutions Which lefties always like to to Hold responsible for them And they go back actually towards this uh, Severing or closing Of the gold window, severing of the uh, the link of uh, money to gold, um, and uh, the inflation and that that uh, unleashed.
1: Well, important because let me throw that because I want to kind of follow up on that uh, in a sense because I have this debate all the time with others because I'm not at, you know, I always kind of viewed it to me as not so much you know you had a straight line of decline but you had you know lines of like certainly in the 70s you had a decline. But the eighties and nineties you could see an increase of wealth creation across the board because of the Reagan Thatcher. I mean, if anyway, they kept you know, they were you know you know, there was some element of growth there and I always yeah. kind of view it as you know, you went back you made a very interesting point. You know, wealthy people tend to have different investments. And I look at it from you know, what happened in the eighties and the nineties and to me and part of, the problem, part of the interesting aspect is you have the creation of the, uh, what I call the investor class, where people started to invest now. But the reality is that, okay, think of it this way. The stock market was worth a $1,000 in in uh, 1980. Today it's, what, 34000 So in effect, you got 340 times increase, which obviously the wealthy are going to get the beneficiary of that. But I always kind of make the point, you know, if you want to see another actual stat data, and once you kind of view on this, what I I said, you know, the the problem is, you know, in reality is as in late as 2007, 63% of Americans had some element of investments, whether it was a house, stocks, RA, everything. While it was nowhere near what you were seeing, let's say, at the top. It certainly meant that people were creating wealth, but starting in 2007 to the present, we've seen a complete drop for that investor class where you went from 63 down to 53 yeah, percent. That means 10 percent of Americans lost value, lost wealth creation. As the market went up during the Obama years, this group suffered because the housing went down the – their investment went down. They were living month to month. The RAs were being sold. And I always thought to myself, you know, that too played a role now, whether or not that's related to 1971, but it certainly was related to the policies we enacted. We've enacted in this century as we moved away from the supply side and moved toward to the demand side.
3: And then there's some truth in that. Um, I think one of the other things that you see decline, uh, after the the, the 71-73 period uh, is kind of business investment, you know, uh, investments in making the economy more productive. Um, And this goes back to points you made earlier, you know, really it's all about expanding the supply side. It's about expanding the amount of goods and services rather than the medium of exchange, the money. Um, And so that's kind of declined, you know. uh, We've seen these declines in productivity. We've seen these declines in economic growth. Um, And so that does kind of impoverish everybody um, or everybody who's kind of lower down the scale. Like I say, if you're at the top, um, it's not worked out too badly for you. And this is why I think uh, I don't necessarily worry about income and wealth inequality per se. Um, But if that that has come about, it depends how it's come about. Um, Like I say, if you look at the British case, the study I referred to earlier, if, some, if one person's got more money than somebody else because they've had a better idea or they work harder, then great. If they've got more money um, or they're wealthier because the government has uh, inflated the money supply, pumped up asset values and pushed down uh, the real value of cash, then that's a problem. And that's a problem that anybody should be worried about. Now, the problem is not the inequality. That's the symptom. The problem is the policies that created it in the first place. And I think that's something that, you know, conservatives uh, can just be worried about and concerned about and and, uh, and angry about as well. Well,
1: I'm going to hold you right there because right now we're about running out of time. So I want to thank you, John, uh, uh, for being on the show. This is a great show, great education on inflation. I want to thank you very much uh, for this, again, for the Center for American Experiment, a great think tank uh, worth looking into. And John Pelham, thank you very much, sir, for being on the show. This is Tom Donaldson saying goodnight from the Donaldson Files.
6: In the uh, area around uh, uh, the Washington area, and then in his spare time, he decided to become the uh, chairman of the uh, board of Super- the board of uh, education for Prince William County. And he's been on our program before, Dr. Babur Latif. And uh, Doc, we're uh, glad to have you on.
5: Glad to be back, Doc Fedowa and uh, Ms. Donaldson. Glad to be back, sir.
6: So well, Tom, yeah,
5: glad to have you.
2: Yeah,
6: you're uh, you're always talking about the uh, problems that we have with education, and uh, this is your chance. <laughs> well, you <laughs> know what? I, I'm
1: going to ask a question. Yeah, and I'm going to put I'm going to put you, Doctor, on the spot. Sure. Because this came up in the debate last night for the governor's race, where I won't name names. Sure. <laughs> a candidate, <laughs> basically, all but stated that parents really should not be telling educators how to do, you know, uh, do their job. And I thought to myself, you know, you happen to be elected by those very same parents. When you heard that statement, what was your first reaction? You know, I, so I,
5: I, I, I read about it. I didn't watch the debate. And so, the, I, yeah. you know, I don't know what the question was or the context, but I guess I would say that, you know, look, we, in America – right? We have elected school boards who are the people. We have, um, you know, Congress, which is the people, and, you know, we all decide together, uh, you know, we oversee a school board and a superintendent, I mean, the school board oversees the superintendent, and the superintendent brings to a school board, here's our curriculum that we're designing, here's how we're going to do our stuff, and, and, uh, and the school board typically approves moving forward with that. Now, r- the context of that is the the state mandates, you know, either through General Assembly or Virginia Department of Education or the U.S. Department of Education, some level of uh, minimum curricular work that they'd like to see managed in, in the standards of learning. So, you know, we try to comply with, with that and uh, and do that. So I don't know the context of what he was asked and why he yeah. said that, to be honest with you, but but that's how I approach my job, right?
1: Yeah. Well, here's the thing. I'll try to put it somewhat in context because, like you say, it was like a – it's like a two or three minute exchange and it del- It did deal with one of the things that came up with the House Bill 2191 I guess for procedure for handling sexually explicit instructional materials uh, which I understand the not the present government but the previous governor uh, vetoed. Now, he talked about the fact I vetoed this bill for this reason and then he made that statement and I'm not sure if was a connection to that but certainly When you, you know, if the context was, you know, certainly, you know, the the other candidate's position was, you know, wait a minute, you know, don't we, you know, don't parents have a say? For example, you know, whether it's, okay, like, for example, teaching of sexually explicit materials in a classroom, you know, or, you know, and and at what age you do that. Should parents have a role in that? And that's what part of the discussion was. And then that statement came out. uh, And that was his concluding statement. Uh, Yeah. And so maybe that's the context, but still, you know, the bottom line was, uh, you know, that's, you know, that's, that was what, again, it was like a two, three minute, you have to go back, it's like a two, three minute discussion. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
5: No, I mean, I mean, to the
1: extent,
5: yeah, to to the extent that, um, you know, local school boards make local decisions about you know what we ought to be teaching the students based on you know local uh input, I think that that may be how I perceived his answer, and I think that's that 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 is how we try to do it here now under the you know remember under the context of sort of following you know whatever guidance or laws or you know whatever requirements we have to do coming from the state we we certainly have a lot of uh, a lot of say in how best we do that. So I think to that extent, I would say, yeah, you know, parents who elect people like me, and you know, we include people on 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 committees, right? We have a parent par- yeah. um, superintendent's advisory council made up of parents, right? And principals have principals' advisory councils made up of parents who who kind of bring to our attention issues that 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 bother them or concern them and how best we move forward. So. You know, I I don't know. In the context of that, I I think that's probably what he said, but I I don't know. Um, How how do you
6: you you select those people?
5: How do we select those people? Many of them are volunteers. Uh, Many of them are, like, you know, the people who engage in the parent-teacher organizations. Um, You know, sometimes we we will put out, like, a, uh, um, you know, for example, like, you know, we'll, we'll say, you know, we have a Safe Schools Committee, um, student member uh, school board members get to appoint people to the safety committee or the school safety committee uh... here's 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 the website anybody who wants to apply please send in your application Um or you know your interest send a note of interest and then and then you know typically staff vet them and then give them to me and say here we had a list of folks that are interested some board members will say okay well just give me the names from my district because i want to appoint someone from my district right um yeah so that's 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 an example of how we do some of that
1: yeah. okay let's i'm gonna follow up on another point you make because and i want to get follow because i want to kind of tie it into what was said last night because i think yeah it's a, an integral part of who controls education
2: obviously right. the
1: state will want to have certain things on. we you want you want to make sure this is taught you know you know yeah. we had this conversation the last time you know sure talk about the importance of stem i mean one of the yep. points you made and i want to yeah. You had a couple of schools where, quite frankly, you didn't have a, a geometry teacher. Right, 100%. <laughs> yeah, and yet that's the requirement, that, you know, but you want to make sure mathematics, uh, including advancement, is an requirement of the yeah. education. But these standards are not set independently. They're set by the state legislature working with the right. Board of Education. So, in other words, it's not like somebody comes up and says, well, we're going to do it this way. No, we're elected and here's our ideas. Then let's you know right. work it out. Right. And then certainly, I don't have any problems with the standard side. But the question is, how do you let's say teach it history. history? Uh, that's a big debate we have got right now dealing with the right. 1619 project versus I know uh, under the Trump administration you have the 1776 project, and you do have a group uh, I call it 1776 Unite that you know you know you know how you teach history. It's not just okay. We want you to learn history. Right. What are you going to learn? And that, to me, comes into your program, to what you yeah. and your follows. Uh, would you? Would that be a correct statement? Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, so let's let's say the standards
5: are set broadly that you know we need to cover, for example, the Constitution of the United States. Right. That's required curriculum by every state. You know, as, as a requirement. And, and so, I think, as you point out, there's a lot of debate on how best to teach aspects of, you know, our independence, the Constitution, and um, there are different ways to do that. And I think there are real concerns by folks on all sides of how we're doing that. And I think, you know, one, the state can offer a standard of what needs to be covered, but then they can't really dictate real well on how – I mean, I don't know, to the extent the pedagogy that goes into, well, here's how you prescribe and teach it at, you know, at a microscopic level, I don't think the state – dictates it to that level correct they don't i don't think teachers have quite a bit of flexibility in helping decide uh... how to get the points across to the students and and that's where the challenges and controversies lie right and i think that's been since the beginning of time well that's not new
6: do you allow allow parents to go in and uh, monitor what the teachers are teaching
5: um... No, I mean, to the extent to go observe a classroom, I don't think we do that. No, no.
6: Because that's one of the issues that's coming up now, and people are saying, you know, <clears throat> we'd like to actually hear what these, uh, what the teacher teachers, teachers are saying. Yeah. What the kids coming home with is not what we what we want them to know.
1: Sure, sure.
6: Yeah, but let me, yeah, let's not follow up
1: real quick before real go before the next break because, yeah, you know, if we go back to where we were a year ago with the pandemic. Right, you know, a lot of parents found themselves <laughs> know, watching what was there. happening on the internet. What was happening? Yeah, I yeah. And after the next break, you know, but, you know really take the next break. You know, what I want you to come back to is what did every parent have come to you said? So God, I didn't realize this was going on, type of deal. You know, you know, what was the response to a lot of parents? You know, who were watching their this education being zoomed in to their classroom. To their kids, to their homes, and I'll be kind of great, curious great,
6: what kind of comments question. you are getting. Yeah. Great, question. so Larry, well, hold that, hold that thought. While we take okay. a break. Okay. Yep. Uh, you're listening to the Resistance Hour on the Bachelor News Radio Network.
4: A boy born in Joplin, Missouri, was fascinated by anything with wheels and a motor. The odds of him going on to fascinate millions with his talent—one in two hundred and sixty thousand. The odds of this born racer having 157 career top 10 finishes in NASCAR, 1 in 125 billion. But every driver seeks the pinnacle of their achievements. The odds of him winning both the Daytona 500 and the Brickyard 400 in the same year, 1 in 195 million. The odds of a child being diagnosed with autism, 1 in 88. I'm NASCAR driver Jamie McMurray, and my niece has autism. Learn more at AutismSpeaks.org slash signs. Early diagnosis
0: can make a lifetime of difference.
4: Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council.
6: to the resistance hour with dr. larry and tom donaldson on the bachelor news radio network and uh you were in the, you were almost in mid-sentence tom why don't you want to finish that thought well
1: like i said what i really what i want you know you know, you know, you know, to, you know the doctor kind of comment on yeah. is a lot of parents i'll bet you quite a few parents were getting a first look at what was being taught or what the style of their teachers were or And I was just always kind of, you know, what kind of comments did you get saying, I didn't know this was going on, this is good, this is bad? You know, what kind of comments were some parents telling you based on what they were actually observing for the first time? So I would tell you the number one
5: complaint last year when parents were observed was the concern that the curriculum uh, at all grade levels lacked rigor right? It wasn't, it it, it didn't seem like the students were being demanded to do a lot. So, you know, especially at the elementary level, it felt like we were not doing any science. We didn't do a whole lot of social studies as much as we normally do when we're in class. We spent maybe more time on the math and and the reading because of the limitations of Zoom and this and that. And so the biggest concern I had was, look, they're not covering xyz materials just not being done in and, in and, and some of that panned out like our science scores for the standard of learning exam across the state were pretty bad they were pretty bad and um... in in our county that you know we we struggled with those as well and in math was just you know even though we spent some time on math was really challenging The the scores were really bad so the number one complaint i got and, and so i i think you know were there people unhappy with the way that um... Teachers were delivering education. I think there was just a concern that they felt like, you know, my kid's really not getting it. They're not learning it. It's not working. Um, not so much on the actual material other than, the, like I said, the rigor. I didn't get any emails or complaints, again, in the social studies department or on how we're teaching a specific history lesson or or something, um you know i think you know not that not 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 at a level that i was worried about no and and you know and you bring up the point so so now last year right we had people watching what happened is it a good idea to send parents into classrooms to watch teachers teach um you know i i think that's disruptive i'm not sure that can be i'm not sure that's necessarily helpful um you know, I, I do recognize so so, so where I my, you know where, where I may have a passion, right? like I, I feel like sometimes, boy, they could be teaching this math in a much easier way, right. They, I don't know why they're complicating it or why they're not doing it this way. And I wish I could be in there to watch this and do this. you know um, So just on the, on the math level, right? And so I can understand how folks might say, well, I'm not sure I like the way the teacher's presenting xyz and social studies you know it seems like it may be coming from a biased point of view um i don't know how we get out of that in a country as large as ours and with a curriculum as vast as ours and with a liberal education like we're supposed to be delivering i don't know the answer to that
6: well one thing <laughs> you could do, you could require that that if any any visitor in the classroom uh be uh maintain their silence sure you know uh, when we did that in, in uh, college work, we we, we allowed uh, observers to come in. Sure, but it was strictly uh, it was strictly enforced Wait. that uh, that they were not supposed to speak up and they were not supposed to uh, disrupt the class in any way. They did they did fill out a questionnaire at the end. I mean afterwards, and in fact uh, that led to many. You know, when I was a dean, for example, that led to. Some uh, pretty spirited uh, meetings, but they were not in the classroom, and the kids were not per- present.
5: Right, right. Hey, right, Tom, is this something that you've seen elsewhere being done?
1: Yeah, you know, I, you know, I've not necessarily seen it done per se. I've not heard it as a yes, right. or I, I hear more or less people going to school board meeting. Yeah, no, no,
5: no. But, out. you know, I, I'm going to put this on a list but to not, look up to see if this is something that's yeah. done anywhere in the country as sort of a oversight compliance kind of mechanism that would include yeah, parents. Well, I no, think I, that's that, an interesting that, point. That,
1: you know. Yeah, because here's the deal. I mean, the, you know, like I say, because they've already seen it with the Zoom. Right. And you've, got, and, you've and the comments are coming back to your point. You know, I, I wish we could have done this more rigorous. You know, something was right. missing. Now, whether it was missing because of the, the Zoom and, and yeah. between doing somebody at Zoom and doing somebody in the classroom, I don't know. But let me throw the question back to you. As a school board. Member,
5: well, you know, I, I, uh, I think what yeah, the, the what 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 I think we saw last year and, and if you ran yeah. parallel examples, like we have some virtual classes that have been virtual for many, many years. So you could take a virtual yeah. statistics class. Those students and those teachers and those classes continue to operate as well as they did in the past. It was everybody who got thrown into something new, having to develop a curriculum to deliver online was just incredibly challenging. And it was not so much the teachers, it was just the system failed, the pandemic created challenges. Whereas the people who had been doing this for years, right, they figured it out. They, they had it figured out. They knew what to do. And so some of those teachers who were then asked to teach, okay, a Cal class, much easier were able to to do that um, and so it's just, just like anything else, right? If you've been doing something, you get better at it. And for the first time, we all got thrown into it. And uh, so I, I don't want to say that it can't be done. I'm just saying it just failed miserably last year, and um, we can't ever go through that again. That was hell.
1: Well, yeah, well, let me ask you this question. As a school board member, yeah, have you yourself been an observer? Have other members of the school board been observers going in yeah, uh, so let's you know the right. I know I, I know you have a job to do, but have you ever had that yeah. opportunity or have you ever thought about? God, I would love to just go back and just see what's going on in the math. What so we're you doing. know that,
5: that's that, so that's that's a great question. I haven't done. it. I've been invited into classes to speak, and then I'd watch sort of what's going on until they get to my my part about it. I haven't gone in to observe. Typically, to be honest with you, Tom, I. I I have – the course – the classes that I would like to go and observe and that I've asked in the past and may have, you know, jumped in real quick are the ones where I knew someone was doing great work, right? Like we had a teacher of the year. Like, okay, let me go see – why were they the teacher of the year? Um, you know, I uh, those are the kinds of things I did. I can tell you, teachers and principals don't like board members coming in and <laughs> snooping around, right? That's not, and, and as you point out, that's what you'd like to see because I think that adds a level of accountability that you, I yeah. think, you feel like you, you maybe that the public feels like they demand. Um Well, thing is, you're
1: elected. Yeah. You're elected to do to do right. part. Right. To me, as a school board member, is you know, if, I teacher, if I was incumbent, incumbent on us to do something like that. Yeah. Something and just the fact that, okay, what are you guys doing? You know, what do you need to do? What do you don't need to do? You know, what's the theory behind this? Because math is, right. I, I'll give you a, a story. You know, because this did happen. You know, my oldest, you know, my daughters. this is when they were in elementary school. And they started falling behind in math. And I was like, oh, you know, this, you know, we're, my wife and I were like, Yeah, you know, what the hell, you know, what's going on? You know, mm mm-hmm. And so, and she went into like the past second grade, they went into third grade, and she was like a, you know, they were way behind. And we finally went in and said, how the hell could this happen? What's going on? And she says, well, I mean, she came back and said, well, the person who taught you, you know, was using an inferior inferior methodology that was designed for less talented people than your daughter. In other words, she basically spilled the beans, you know, the teacher sucks. Yeah, <laughs> that's a yeah you know, a nice way of putting it. You kind know, of uh, only she was a lot more diplomatic than I was, but you know, it would have been. A head, you know, but these are the kinds of things. Now, if you have a situation where, I mean, like she said, everybody who was with this teacher, I had to, and she had to, and my daughter ended up having to play catch up, which she did because she had a very good math teacher in third grade who caught her up. And, and, right, and, and she ended up exceeding at the end of the year, but still this was a methodology issue that, you know, I would you know, we went to the, you know, friends say, what the hell? Explain yeah. this to us now. You know, right. I mean, we could have had one or two. I mean, if she had one more or two or three more years of this, it would have been, you know, Katie barred the door.
5: Right. Isn't, right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, these are, these are the challenges that we face, right, in, in, in yeah. In in getting our public schools to perform better, um, I I, I um, if I had an answer for you on how to fix it, I think your, your experience isn't much yeah. different than I think every parent's experience at some point during their kids' yeah. education. Um, you know, and I, I don't know. You know, I mean, I I can tell you that I yeah. I've been frustrated in in each subject at different levels. I have four kids, right, and and my oldest just yeah. graduated. I have a twelfth grader, you know. I had a freshman in college. I have an eleventh grader. I have a ninth grader. And I have a fifth grader, and I've I've been through it all now yeah. four times. And so, yeah. um, these are the kinds of things I'm trying to address and fix. Right? How how do we improve pedagogy? How do we improve curriculum? How do we improve teachers? How do we get professional yeah. development into the teachers so that if there is a teacher, like if there is a teacher not doing the job they're supposed to do, how are we holding that accountable? You know? Yeah. I mean, you know? Do, do you know? And, and and that is the struggle. Um, That's a real struggle.
6: Did you have any uh, labor problems last year when all that was going on?
5: No. I mean, you know, Doc, we we currently, just like everyone else, face a shortage of bus drivers. Um, You saw Massachusetts, I think, was calling out the National Guard to drive school buses. We have a a shortage of bus drivers. We have a shortage of teachers. Uh, We have a shortage of teaching assistants. So some of the federal dollars we're getting, right? We we have dedicated to hiring teaching assistants, teaching aides. We can't fill those positions. We've used some of that money for what's called high dosage tutoring to catch get kids caught up. It's easier to find tutors, um, and even online tutors, and in, and in, in, in outfits that do this work for school systems. Um, so that that's a little bit easier. But we are facing labor shortages. Across the board, I mean, our are hospitals are facing nursing shortages. We're facing nursing shortages in the school system as well, um, and the cost of employing people is really going up. I mean, that's a real thing, you know. I mean, there are nurses in the hospitals, for example, who could quit the job and take the same job as a traveling nurse and get paid almost two and a half times on an hourly salary mm. to do the same job, but just say I'm going to traveler. I'm not going to work full time, <laughs> you know.
4: I'm
5: going to work for a traveling outfit. So, you know we're not at that level in the teaching profession, but we are we are facing um, shortages.
6: I was thinking of the problems with the uh, national teachers unions that didn't want to want to get paid for not teaching you,
5: uh, Ours you know. showed up, our showed up, they worked we had very few sort of you know we had folks quit or resign maybe a couple years early, retire a little bit earlier than they would have if it wasn't for a pandemic um it, i think there is a there is a concern that the pipeline is going to be smaller for people going into teaching but from a union standpoint uh you know we really didn't face anything we have given you know significant raises for the last five years we're the lowest paid teachers in northern virginia area so we've had a lot of catching up to do um but we, we haven't faced it yet I mean, you know i'm not sure you know we're out of the woods i mean it was a tough year and so teachers are like you know I've had it. I don't want to go through this again. So there are some people who are saying that. Um, but we haven't seen it yet. I mean, you know, Virginia continues to be a state that um, um, we haven't seen that level of uh, uh, teacher issues or labor stuff.
6: Well, hold that thought. Uh, we're, uh, you're listening to the Resistance Hour on the Bachelor News Radio Network.
0: Go, Caleb! Come on! And hit a homer, Jesse! Let's go, guys! Hey, did you guys know that kids who play sports earn more money when they grow up?
4: Of course. I, I knew that.
0: Hey, did you guys know that kids who read books have a bigger vocabulary?
4: Oh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Wow, Jinx.
5: <laughs> did you guys know that friendly children have more friends?
4: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That's true. I knew that. Did you guys know that winter babies are better at music?
0: Everyone knows that. Oh, yeah? yeah pretty obvious yeah yeah oh hey guys did you
5: know that most people think they're using the right car seat for their kid but they're not
0: huh i didn't know that i'm pretty sure i knew that i'm pretty sure you didn't parents who really know it all know for sure that their child is in the right car seat at the right age and size visit safercar.gov slash the right seat to make sure your child is protected brought to you by the national highway traffic safety administration and the ad council
6: you're listening to the uh, Resistance Hour on the Bastard News Radio Network. Uh, uh, doc, uh, I'd like to have you uh, tell, <coughs> tell the audience uh, some of the uh, things that you were telling We were talking about uh, uh, when we got together a little while ago regarding – I was really pretty surprised when you – I asked you what your main problem was, and you said it was it was a problem of uh, what did you call it? Uh,
1: oh, over
5: quarantining.
6: Yeah. Yeah.
5: So I think the biggest challenge for this year for school divisions across the country is managing how best to quarantine and who to quarantine and and um, um, how many days missed students have of quarantining. So. You know this is sort of this year's version of whether we open or close schools. You know that fights over we're all in we're all open for the most part. The question now is how do we keep the kids in? How do we keep them first from contracting covid we don't We don't want that to happen right so we we still do the mitigation we're still doing the masking but but but, at the elementary level, for example, you know we we in the first couple of weeks of school, we had to quarantine about five hundred kids um i think last week we were higher than that we might have been close to a thousand and the quarantining rules are such that you know um if you haven't been vaccinated and you're told to quarantine around day five you're allowed to get a test if you test negative you can come back in around day seven um if you don't test you come back in day 10. so at a minimum you're missing five uh, actual business days or five days of school right on a seven-day quarantine that's a whole week, and, um, and it's just a lot, and, and that's the challenge. And then how do you deliver the education to them when they're at home? You know, we, we can't. it's very hard to run a concurrent class. We saw that last year. It didn't work. Uh, we're sending work home. We're having office hours. But, you know, how can we reduce that quarantine? And are the rules for quarantine appropriate? Is what the CDC putting out, you know, appropriate? So what, you know, I, I had mentioned to you, There was a study that said, you know, of the students who've been quarantined, only 2% turned positive. Well, if that's true, do we need to have as strict of a quarantine procedure as we do? Or maybe we should do a test-to-stay policy where, like, on day one or two, you test, and if you're negative, you get to stay rather than test to get back in. Um, And so we have to look at programs like that, and we cannot continue with this sort of – uh, what I would call over quarantining, which is really concerning to me, because it's a lot of days missed for kids.
1: Can I, can I follow up on the point, uh, because uh, don't, you know, because here's the question I'm going to have, because you're a physician, so mm-hmm. you'll understand this. But a lot of these tests, like these P, uh, the PSR, that I, I guess yeah. maybe the question I would throw back: Are they being tested? Do they have symptoms, or are they just being tested and it shows up?
5: Right, right, right. So, so, I mean, if you're quarantined, you, you know, and you want to get back in early, we test you. So we're not doing testing as part of any of our school protocols. Right now, we don't test. Okay. So if a kid comes, if the kid is uh, known positive, he, he, you know, he goes home, he gets sick, he gets tested, he's positive, he reports that to the school. Sorry. The school then takes a look at basically if they're masked, if there are any kids within three feet of that child for longer than 15 minutes, all those people have to be quarantined, right? Right. Uh, So that's sitting at the lunch, sitting on the school bus, Uh, maybe if you're right next to them in the classroom, those are the kids being quarantined. So maybe for every one kid that gets positive, you know, at an elementary level, if they're strict on seating charts, maybe it's five to seven kids get quarantined. Um, We don't shut down whole classrooms unless you have four kids or five kids in the classroom all get positive, right? So you have like a mini outbreak there, then I guess we shut down that classroom. And we've had to shut down a few classrooms this year. Um, and, and that is concerning, and so but and then when we do shut down a whole classroom, that teacher then reverts to virtual go back online and everyone 's in the classroom online so that 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 's something that does seem to work but but yeah I man that's we, we, we don 't do the testing, so the question is we've resisted doing testing because it 's not practical it 's not cost efficient and it doesn 't give us much information um, that I think uh, is practical in keeping kids yeah. in now now i will i have changed my mind on the sense that i i have no problem if you know if only 2% of the kids you're quarantining actually turn positive why not test them on right day 1 2 or 3 or say the minute you get a symptom let's test you if you're asymptomatic you know you're negative test and let's let you back in right cuz even the chance of you turning positive is going to be so low it's probably lower than the risk of getting covid just coming on a normal day to school you know yeah. Uh, because we do have a significant number of kids turning positive every day uh, in a school system yeah. with 91,000. So I think the vaccine, when approved for kids, if if parents with their pediatrician decide this is the right way to go, certainly that's going to reduce quarantining. Um, we're, we don't look at, I don't think anyone, I mean, in our area, I don't see us mandating vaccines for that age group. I, I certainly think that it's something that we would highly encourage, but, again, it's between the parent. Their pediatrician yeah. and the kid.
6: How many of them really well, get you're, sick? You're, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah I mean, we had I this conversation
5: last time. You know, like you know, so yeah. they they get sick, but you know, we did see with the Delta variant that kids. So, and it's really important to know kids who are zero to four age group did get a little sicker with the Delta than the regular. So they got hospitalized more, they got intensive care unit more, and they got uh, a couple, a few more deaths at the zero to four age group, right, if you look at across the country. Now, if from the five to 12 age group, all we saw was that it, the Delta variant was more contagious, meaning more kids got it. They were slightly sicker with it, meaning they got hospitalized at a higher rate, but they did not get put in the intensive care unit at a higher rate, and they did not die at a higher rate than the normal variant.
1: And, well, and then, yeah. Yeah. yeah, can I follow up with that? How many of those people were COVID and how many had renal? Because I've seen in the medical journal, rhinoviruses have been amongst zero to four in particular have seen increases.
5: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I'm assuming that these are positive tested, PCR tested, COVID tested patients because you can't include them in a study unless you have a good reliable test data. I mean, that's what you hope. I mean, again, that's, um, th- you know, that's why, like, parents are pushing back on me because I'm like, why don't you just do the rapid test at home, the ones they sell at CVS, and then if it's negative, let them back in. I'm, I'm getting pushback from people saying, well, that's not accurate. And I'm saying, well, the risk of them even turning positive is so low anyways. This test is better and cheaper than a PCR. Uh, why not use this one? And so, again, there's a lot here that we've got to unpack, right? Yeah. And it, it stinks, guys. It yeah. stinks. guys. stinks.
1: I mean, from your perspective, in particular, because you're in a much different so we're make like a the Yeah, you the, we can just we could we can criticize your work because we're on the sideline.
5: <laughs> yeah, you're, you can opine all day, and and uh, and then when you're when you have to make a yeah. call, it really sucks. We're, we're not the one going to be like.
1: But I guess my question, because to me, PSRs themselves have their own inaccuracy. So if you can, they do
5: they, like they do you... just just like just like any test does. Sure, sure. Yeah.
1: Sounds like to me what you're really saying, let's go use the cheap test first and if you're, ed, you know,
0: if you're that, good, yeah, you're good. Yeah,
5: yeah. I, I think so in, in in you know, and again, I mean I'm willing to pay whatever's cheaper for the school system, so I mean if we get a better deal on PCR I don't really care. I mean the the rapid ones are good because you get to know right away. The PCRs you have to wait 24 hours, yeah. so that's another day lost. And so just the practical aspects of all this. And then when you talk about student-athletes, guys, you know, our biggest problem last year and which continue this year is, is teams getting infected and having to delay games, reschedule them, quarantine, incredibly disruptive for the sports programs. Um, now, I would say I think and we don't have data on this, but I, I think it's it's panning out that our athletes are, are all vaccinated at a higher rate than the um, – general population of student non-athletic uh, non-athlete students so uh, because they don't want to miss days uh, of their team and they don't want to jeopardize their team so i think we're seeing a little bit more vaccinations this year and less disruption this year but but uh, that's another that's another problem because those guys are in the locker room right next to each other and so you know and they're, and they're the size of adults and so some of them that do get it you know come down a little bit harder with it
6: what, have you run into any uh boys that want to play on girls' teams?
5: <laughs> we haven't had that issue in our school division, and not, um,
6: not one huh
5: no, no, not since I've been on this board and uh you know we you know you know someone said this i think it was a, it was a superintendent somewhere in virginia said guys we we've dealt with." Uh, transgender issues, gender identity issues. This is not new. I mean, it's been around 50 to 100 years. I mean, there's always someone or something somewhere where, you know, um, an understanding has to be made, accommodations have to be made. And, you know, we live in a civilized world that, you know, you didn't hear about this before because our society and our teachers, our principals all work through these things, maybe at an individual level, right? I mean, this is not new. It's not as if um, – uh you know some of these issues are brand new to us um and so you know to the extent that we do have to trust our local i mean you know as tom started out the conversation you know at what point do you trust your local government your local community to make some of these decisions i think that is important and i think um and that's where the natural right fight is in this country, where, you know, what should remain local control and local decision and what should become federalized or statewide. And that will be the constant tension in our democracy for moving, you know, forever. And you're a Democrat.
6: How can you be a Democrat? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, but I, I'm, I'm agreeing that it's a
5: tension. And so I would tell you there's some things I believe should be federalized and some things I think should remain Under local control. I'm not that smart to tell you that I know the answer, by the way. You know, sometimes (laughs) we've got to
1: try it, and it may fail. Um, Well, I'm up on this one. Having watched the pandemic for the past year and a half. I've come to the conclusion that even our experts are not invulnerable to stupidity.
0: Yes.
5: (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. And and that we are dealing with a pandemic of stupid, right, in in many ways. (laughs) In many ways.
1: Well, you know what I'm saying, because, you know, like I said, I, again, my, my education, you know, because I was in the School of Education at James Madison, but this was early oh. 1970s. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, nineteen seventy seventy six. So Sure. And it was, I mean, and I'll give you this story. It was fascinating because at the time, you know, Madison was the teacher's college of Virginia yeah. at the time. Yeah, right. And uh, I don't know if it still is or not. I still what, supplies
5: a you know, between them and Mason they probably are the largest two of um, supplying new teachers.
1: Yeah. Well, the thing I could I would always remember is I had a chance when I was student teacher to compare myself to a young teacher who was like her second year. And she came to me one day and said, God, you really know your stuff And we got talking. So I asked her, How many classes do you take? And I found out she was taking twice as many quote unquote educational classes. And far less of her subject matter and I, and I kinda of thought to myself, Well, no wonder. <laughs> I mean, you're learning about the subject matter while you're teaching it. You know. At Madison at the time, you know, we just didn't have a you know, the we had very few educational courses. A lot of it was more or less on the job training, which to me, at least for the high school side of the equation, uh, worked out very nicely. Because when I walked yeah. in that door I was prepared and and, I'm, and I have to be honest with you. I I want somebody asked me, and I said, well, a good start for education in this country. Get rid of a lot of the school of education because a lot of them do more damage than they do good, because they're not always preparing kids, preparing the teacher for the actual teaching.
5: Right. I mean, I, I mean, I think there's a big debate on that, right? I mean, I I I, I you yeah. know, and I I would. You know, I, 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 you know, just again, I, I, I always go back to math. For example, I'm not sure we're preparing our math teachers um, in the way we we best ought to be doing. Yeah. But I, I don't know, you know, again, who knows? Uh, these are these are the challenges, and you know, just it's it's really tough, guys. I I wish I yeah. had more answers for you. Um, and and you know, I might have some opinions that I could share, but I, I I don't know what's right and what's wrong in the sense that I think what we can do best is. I mean this is the the great challenge is the liberal education, right? What what are we trying yeah. to do? And and the the problem with that is sometimes it can look messy and um not be I guess the way we want. You know, some folks want a more prescripted um way of teaching. I mean I, I, I've seen I've seen some fascinating teachers do some great innovative things, but I think what I might think is innovative other parents would think is um uh, uh heretic. heretic. Yeah, outlandish, right? And so, um, you know, I, 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 and so I, I don't know the answer. But then, then, then sometimes you get some great results with the, the, um, the innovative stuff, and sometimes you get terrible results with the innovative stuff. So you hope that the innovative stuff survives and and, and catches on and, and doesn't be isn't called outlandish. But
6: well, well, hold hold that thought, because uh, as a former innovator, I'd like to get in on that. Uh, you're listening to the Resistance Hour uh, and the Bachelor News Radio Network.
0: I never hey, My kids don't are need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. That my house was under control. Problems. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not uh, a big deal. My kids are too old the for media flu. Is I can fight it naturally.
2: No matter how you build your excuses, the flu
0: can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong.
2: Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the... U- NAPA Know-How! The NAPA guy knows not to judge a man by his car's multicolor paint job or absence of modern gadgetry. Who cares if it's technically old enough to vote and the windows are powered by the strength of your left arm? Your monthly payment is zero and it'll stay that way. Because with over 500,000 parts and a little NAPA know-how... You can keep anything on the road. She may not be pretty, but she's all yours. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how.
6: You're listening to the Resistance Hour on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Uh, as somebody who has done a lot of experimenting myself, I uh, uh, I am very interested in your reaction to that. Uh, in that last uh, segment there.
5: <clears throat> right. So you sent me a document about the innovative um, university you created back in the 1970s and, and how you did it and with the article, The Fiddler on the Roof. Now, I read it because my son is currently the in the ensemble for the local production for Fiddler on the Roof. Oh, really?
0: Um,
5: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So... So I thought it was
0: timing, huh? it was
5: good timing, and I thought we were destined to have this conversation because I I was stunned. But there's very similar to what you what you posted for the listeners to know that you know Dr. Fedwa came up with a university that um, uh, was innovative, non-traditional. Uh, addressing uh, I guess needs of a community and of a student rather than needs ne- necessarily of the I guess let's say the Academy or, or an educational prescription I don't know if that's a fair way to say it I, I don't I, I but um, in the sense you know, there's another book written more recently called College Disrupted which basically after reading your thing your 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 um uh editorial or, or your your information it's almost as if this guy lifted everything you did 50 years ago and wrote it in a book called College Disrupted which um I can't remember the author's name. Um, there was a
6: lot of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that
5: well that's good. That's what you wanted, I guess in the end, right? So that that's uh but you you're correct. I mean you you um and maybe you should you should tell the public or the 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 listeners what you what you wrote to me today.
6: Well, I I don't want <clears throat> to go into too much detail, but um, I basically had to. I, I started out with with the typical uh, educator's uh, requirement, and that is I had to raise money. <laughs>
1: so,
6: <laughs> right. So I figured uh, the only place that, that that came to mind was <clears throat> the federal government. So I had never written a a. a uh, proposal to the feds before but um that was the first of what turned out to be many in the in the years to follow. But anyway so I I uh I did. I, I wrote this proposal in which I uh, suggested an entirely uh different uh model for higher education. <coughs> Basically uh uh, did away with classes and did away with teachers and did away with uh, most of the conventions. The first thing I attacked was uh, credits, because I never could understand how you could uh, divide knowledge into little pieces called uh, a credit here and a credit there. And uh, so we uh, we 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 invented something called the portfolio plan, which was very innovative in those days where we gave uh, college mm. credit for exterior for experience outside the outside the classroom and uh, and then we uh, we designed essentially a, a tutorial and uh, community-based uh, educational programs for people who uh, in areas that that they chose we asked them well what don't you know that you that you would like to know and and then uh, how are you going to find what wh- what do you know about it and how are you going to find out uh what what is, what you want to know and how are you going to prove it to us and so on so it became very uh it, be- it became very very popular very quickly and uh, a lot of the things that we did uh, were were in fact uh, nowadays are considered pretty uh pretty standard
5: yeah Right, internship programs, and they call it different things now. But you're right, and we're doing some of that in our high schools.
6: Well, um, so when you say innovation, though, it seems like with with the regimentation that we have uh, in in first of all in the colleges of education, and then I mean the most the strictest. Um, the, 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 the most regimented curriculum, I think, in the entire university is the School of Education, and and you get more and more uh, regulation coming from. It used to just come from the state. Now it's starting. To, it's, it's also coming from the federal government. Um, how do you how do you manage to have some experimentation? It's it's almost uh, seems almost uh, ridiculous.
5: I, I mean, Larry, I, I agree with you hundred percent. I mean, you know, we have requirements for students to graduate that almost leave no time for any kind of innovative curricular or opportunities outside of what we gotta get the kids to do. I think um and I think people are seeing that and I, I think Virginia actually, I think their department of education has relaxed some things, gotten rid of a few SOLs um, over the years, I, I think I, I think that's the reason why. I mean, I think we still rank pretty high for education, both on uh, K through 12 and higher. But but we have to do more of that. Let, I mean, let me give you an example. We have a, a high school in in one of the rural areas, uh, Brentsville District High School. We have a horticulture program there, um, I, and I don't know if I would term it as career tech ed. I, I think it's um, it's a program where students can actually take a heavy curriculum in learning how to um, farm, how to grow uh, grow plants, understand plant disease. Um, they actually grow turf there. They grew the football field. Uh, it's a turf science. Uh, they have turf science coursework. Um, and those students graduate and go on to Virginia Tech, Penn State, Ohio State, in their turf science programs and their um, horticultural programs, and then they go on to manage golf courses and, 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 and run fields for either professional or the college-level teams. And, and those are some of the jobs they go out to. It's, a, it's an incredibly popular program we have, right? Um, and it's responsive. It, it would be, you know, it, you guys might not like me when I say this, but culturally responsive in the sense that community is a farming community that really loves that program and wants to expand it And and they've asked me, Dr. Latif, can we build a turf science laboratory here? Because three universities have come to us and said, you know, Virginia, if you can grow grass in Virginia because you have the extremes of weather, like really hot and really cold summers, and the grass survives, that's the kind of grass we can sell and make and produce and seeds we can sell in in many parts of the world. Um, So what can survive in all of these climates? This is apparently this, this belt of growth you know, apparently the grass that grows here is great grass, right, <laughs> similar to the Kentucky bluegrass. And so, I mean, it's fascinating. I learned that, you know. And so do I want to expand that program? Will that program work in one of my schools in a more urban setting? No, nobody's going to sign up for that, right? But that's a program that I believe we've been able to put together, innovate, uh, make culturally relevant, make, and if we can expand and grow it, we could be one of the – and we have a greenhouse there, and these students grow stuff, and at the end of the year, like in April, they sell the, the plants. And I bought about 40 plants from them for really cheap, by the way, and they all grew fantastic in my garden, you know. Um, so. Well, there's
1: the, yeah, other, follow, thing. Yeah. the yeah.
2: other
6: thing. The other thing is that, that yeah. you yeah. get kids uh, that, that see a way to make, to make a living out of, you know, 100% cool.
5: <laughs> that, And from what their family did, right? So, yeah, this is something their yeah. family knows, too.
1: Right. Yeah. yeah, can I follow up on that? Because we yeah. had this conversation last time. Uh, yeah. When we talked about, uh, you mentioned urban centers. Well, you know, I you know, I, read, I did, I remember in my student teaching, I had this young guy. Yeah. I felt, you know, unfortunately, it's one of those sad stories, but happy stories in this sense. The sad story part was, you know, for whatever reason, they passed this kid on. And he had like a reading level of a seventh grade and senior in high school. And at that right. point, I'm not going to like a kid. But yeah. one day, we got talking, and I said, what do you, you know, I said, you got a part-time, you know, I understand you have a job. What do you do? He's sitting there telling me about he, worked on an, he was working on an auto shop. And I said, yeah. oh, tell me more. And he literally gave me like a song and verse of an engine, how he's you know, working wow. on it, this. And we went out like for 20, 25 minutes. I'm questioning him, and I'm saying to myself, this kid's smart. Yeah. And, you know, it, and, and my question would be is on one side of the equation, there's certain basic things you want to look like, math, reading, you know, because these are things that are important, even, let's say, in a non-college life. But also, you know, these urban centers, there's enough opportunity with where you can literally get plumbing, electricians, Yo, all kinds of yeah. opportunities for those people. And where you don't need to go to college, to make a good living. No,
5: hundred percent, my friend. And you know, we 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 offer those programs. We offer we have a firefighters yeah. program, which um, they get to learn um, some of the uh, you know half of a first year in a fire uh, academy program. They learn a lot of that, um, so they get a head start, so they can enter the academy when they finish. We have an aviation mechanics program, where we have one. We, there's only like one avi there's two aviation mechanics schools in all of virginia one here and one in virginia beach one in manassas next to one of our high schools so we decided to team up with them um there's a national shortage of aviation mechanics so we believe we could be a pipeline to, to support their their program and so they come in and they teach sort of half their first year curriculum with our students in a career tech program and then when they graduate our students go on to that school finish, and after like 18 months more, they have a $65,000 a year job. You know, um, I mean, if they, they, the aviation mechanics people told me, when you look out your window in the plane, the average age of a current aviation mechanics over 50. Yeah. I mean, we, we have a problem well, worldwide.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, I can mean, well, tell you it's very well, because You know, I travel out of Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and we have a shortage of those. Because yeah. literally, I can tell you right now, the, the person who takes your ticket is the same person who goes out. And doesn't <laughs> yeah, back it right. with the I mean, and, and, and we've had delays. We've had delays yeah. simply because you know we, they just didn't have enough people there yeah. to get yeah. everything ready to go to make sure you're safely flying out. Uh, so the shortages. You're absolutely correct. Uh, so so here correct. here's
5: here's where here's where i i you know and, and we've sort of i don't want to say bashed educators or education schools and, and, I, and i think and I do think still even with the messiness we have America's still the best place in the world to get educated. I think our education yeah. schools are to the extent that we're innovating with problem based learning um you know if you if you think about what you learn in problem based learning, give a kid a problem, they work it out, they sometimes yeah. collaborate they they might do it as a team project. That's going to help the kid who becomes a mechanic, who's trying to solve a tough problem in the shop. It it helps the plumber. It helps the physician. It helps the lawyer. It helps all of us because that's a skill set that I think Americans do better at than anybody else in the world. And I think that pedagogy to get all of us to do that better um, I think is important um, in in getting us to work together on 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 big problems, I, I think that's 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 good. But, well, but that's the, just you know, an opinion.
1: The, yeah. yeah, my opinion, made, and I'll leave this to, you know my opinion is is that in high school, you know, I can tell you for the most part when I went to high school, uh, you know, Larry and I we're old fossils, we're old fossils anyway, so yeah, the, the good old days when we would, you know, travel what. The old saying? Well, five I want you to know I'm studies. a young
6: fossil. <laughs> <laughs>
1: but, but, but to me, the key element to the is two, is two aspects. One, preparing a liberal education to the sense of having the basics of the social studies the basics of the history, yeah. the basics, you know, being able to know how to read, to write, to do mathematics, because those are skills. No matter what you do for the rest of your life you do, and those are things that we you, we should learn in high school we should not be having you know when I hear stories about going to college and you got people doing redeeming well you know you know back to redeeming learning in a college setting that's what right. happened no and, that's
2: a problem and on the other yeah. side of the equation on the other side of
1: the equation you do that on the other side of the equation when these young individuals don't necessarily go but they go and become that air, that plumber, electrician. They work at the airport with the jobs you just mentioned. They're still going to be prepared in many ways for life with the basic knowledge that's important uh, as well. As, you know, hundred percent.
5: Yeah, I mean we 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 have to raise the bar for everyone. I mean, look, if we're going to have a plumbing school, I want our plumbers to be the best ones out there, right? I want my yeah. plumbers to become the heads of their plumbing operations. They need to manage it, right? So, you know, there's a joke, and you guys are both Virginians or close to being Virginians, and I'm on the board of visitors at UVA, so I like to say this joke, because Virginia Tech is the engineering school in Virginia, and UVA has an engineering program, and so people will say, oh, man, you know, I got into both engineering schools, Virginia Tech and UVA. I go, well, and I say to them, well, you can go to Virginia Tech to be an engineer. You go to UVA to be their boss.
0: <laughs> and, and then, and then you pick
6: yourself up off the floor after they've uh, right.
0: assaulted you. <laughs> <laughs>
5: so you know, we—I want my electricians to be the best ones in the world. I want my plumbers. I want our yeah. students. And so I don't know. That—that's—that's that's what how I I try to approach the position.
1: But um, I, I agree. I okay, I agree. I just think to me. We still should never lose sight of that liberal education that should always be there and encourage people and say this is why 100%. it's important. Sometimes we yeah you know, we don't always explain to people this is why it's important to know these yeah, basic right. things. It's right. You're so Important right. to I'm know an so Aristotle right. and a Socrates to go along with the plumbing. Right, right, and <laughs> you know the plumber
5: the, the plumbers, plumbers measure you measure you've you been plumbers. happy with are the ones who can. Explain to you everything in a, in a in a in a simple way about what the problem is. They they send you invoices that make sense. The math is right. They they have good you know customer service. That comes from being you know well educated. You know that's the point.
6: Well, the yeah, other thing awesome. is, what are they going to do in their spare time? You know, <coughs> you you can you can sit and with your on your couch and watch uh, football all day or else you can read a book or you can go play a sport you know the the uh education ought to also be concerned with uh leisure time
5: right right i mean so so see so, you know it go, go, there's a the, um girls who complete girl scouts or finish right and stay in girl scouts and, and boy scouts is well known but girls and girl scouts If they finish in high school as a Girl Scout or whatever they accomplish, I don't know what the Girl Scout thing is called. When the boys do Eagle Scout, the Girl Scouts have some equivalent thing. Uh, Girl Scouts, or I think it's even any, if you've been in Girl Scouts even two or three or four years, there's a study out there that says they make $10,000 on average more per year um, than non-Girl Scouts, and then they're more likely to vote, more likely to join civic organizations, and more likely to join the Rotary than people who weren't in the Scouts. Uh, To the extent that you just brought up, Larry, you want to see people, you know, so I would say contribute to society. Would you want them voting more, joining the Rotary, joining the Lions Club, contributing to society, however best they feel, right?
6: Um, Well, they might might even go and become the chairman of the Board of uh, Education.
5: (laughs) Right, right. Yes, I hope so. Yeah, we need more. Nobody wants this job anymore, Larry. I can tell you this is the most unpopular job all, you know, this is the worst job in the world to be elected to, I can tell you that.
6: Well, we're just about out of time, and we uh, it went by very fast. Uh, we're, uh, we're very uh, pleased that you uh, had the time to, to talk to us and, and get us up to date a little bit, because as uh, Tom says, we're young fogies. Yeah. And, uh,
0: <laughs>
6: and we, we need a little uh, updating, and I hope the audience... Uh, I uh, appreciate and understood uh what we were talking about because it, uh, th- this this is an area that uh, really concerns us not only as a uh, as parents and as friends but also the the the, the uh future of the country 100% you you guys are right
5: you guys are right and, and you know and I and I applaud you all for covering these kinds of topics on your shows it's uh it's really important stuff
6: Well we we uh we're even we're so we're so uh, broad-minded that we uh, we even have a Democrat.
5: You're right, 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 right. And so we're hoping that those plumbers and electricians and physicians and lawyers in their spare time are out organizing for Democrats as well.
2: <laughs> okay. Well, God Cold bless banking, America you know? because we really need it.
5: You guys are the best. I, I really appreciate it. Thanks for allowing me to have the time on your show. You guys are great. Look forward to it again one day. Thank
6: you. Good night. Good
2: night.
6: Lucky Land Casino.
4: Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess. Haha, in my dentist's office.